This is Unfilter, episode 314, for June 11th, 2020. And I want you guys to just be very clear. This man sat here and said, we asked him what he would do for the black community. He sat there and specifically responded and said, he will allow us to vote. Go back to America! Go back to your shithole country of America! Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 314 of your portable podcast. I've been traveling around that shithole country, and what a strange sight I have seen. I have traveled from Washington to Oregon to Idaho to Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and now I am streaming to you from Lubbock, Texas. You can probably hear in the background a little bit of noise. That's not protests, that's construction and air conditioning, because it's like 95 degrees here. The family is out swimming. My little pup, Levi, is down by my feet wondering why I'm making so much noise. And my hometown of Seattle has gone nuts. Uh, we did get stuck in some protests on our way out of the city and had to reroute around that. I'll, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about that as we get to Seattle. But why don't we start with the latest going-ons in the George Floyd protest? Because there was a story from CBS that ran claiming the cop who killed George Floyd had a history with him. And as mourners here in Houston honor the life of George Floyd in Minneapolis tonight, CBS News is learning new details about the former police officer charged in his death. A co-worker tells CBS News the two men worked together at a nightclub, and he says they had a history of not getting along. CBS's Jeff Begay's is in Minneapolis tonight with that new reporting. Now, you may have heard this. It has circulated quite a bit online. But today there was an update that uh, maybe the owner is retracting that story. So I wanted to bring you an update to a story that we covered yesterday. So per CBS News, you'll recall that George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, the officer who ultimately um, murdered him, that they worked together at the same club. And CBS News spoke with one of their co-workers who told them that they had bumped heads, that they knew each other quite well, that there was, you know, quite a lot of tension between them. So the update is that co-worker is now changing his story and saying that it was a case of he could confused George Floyd for a different employee at that club and so that it was not George Floyd. So we just wanted to make sure and bring you that context. Yeah, yeah I confused. I confused this national fame, na nationals, way beyond nationals, world famous man at this point with somebody else. World famous man. I, 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 just, I just thought it was somebody else there for a second. How the hell does that even happen? But you know I love some good leaked audio. So talking about these George Floyd protests, let's go to the leadership in Chicago right when the riots started breaking out. This is some choice audio. This was a conference call on May Sunday, May 31st, to talk about Chicago's response to the widespread looting. On the call were Mayor Lori Lightfoot and all 50 Chicago aldermen and alderwomen, including Alderman Raymond Lopez, one of the mayor's harshest critics. Yeah, you remember that Lightfoot was the mayor who went and got her hair did. Uh, during the lockdown and then defended herself by saying, well, I mean, I'm a public figure. I need to look good. Now, for context, on the day of the conference call, Chicago had 699 arrests, mostly looters. 132 officers were injured. There were 48 shootings, 17 homicides. And Alderman Lopez accused the mayor of being underprepared as the looting spread, saying his ward had become a virtual war zone. Listen. Half our neighborhoods are already obliterated. 
it's too late. We have to come up with a better plan because once my fear is once we're, they're done looting and rioting and whatever's going to happen tonight, God help us. What happens when they start going after residents going into the neighborhoods? Once they start trying to break down people's doors who they think they got something or, you know, we know that people are here to antagonize and incite and you've got them all pumped tonight. Today, they're not going to go to bed at eight o'clock. They're going to turn their focus in the neighborhoods. I've got gangbangers with AK-47s walking around right now, just waiting to settle some scores. What are we going to do? And the alderman wasn't exaggerating. In his ward, two Walgreens were burned down, along with restaurant shops and an entire strip mall. But when Lopez finished speaking, Mayor Lightfoot refused to respond. So Alderman Lopez demanded that she respond. Finally, she did. Watch. I think you're 100% full of what I think. If you think well, we no were offense, well, you then. Who are you, you to tell we me I'm full of? And if you think, if you think we were not ready and we stood by and let the neighborhood go up, there's nothing intelligent that I can say to you. Because well, maybe you should come out of and see what's going on. The stupidest thing I have ever heard. I understand you want to preen. I understand that you think that you. Mayor, you need to check your. Attitude. That's what you need That's to do. And the other alderman jumped in to calm things down. But Alderman Lopez and the mayor weren't the only ones trading profanities. Another alderwoman was heard saying this is a total blank show. And the mayor added that she'd never seen blank like this before. One alderman finally spoke up, saying many people in the city were listening to the call, including children. I've seen several Americas on this trip down here. Washington, I'm used to it. I've normalized it. We've been locked down for months. Is just now beginning to lift. I knew Oregon was in a similar state. When I entered Idaho, it felt like the protests and the coronavirus didn't exist at all. It was weird. Um, and same with Utah for the most part. However, it was intense in Colorado and in New Mexico. It was very intense. There was people protesting along the sides of the street. There were digital signage up, constantly worrying about COVID. Still very strict mask rules. You can't enter. Only one person of a family can enter at a time. We had a hard time finding places to camp because some places were shut down. Um, I even ended up having to give a hitchhiker a ride because his RV had broken down and he couldn't he couldn't get any services in that area because of the lockdowns. <laughs> it was let me tell you that's quite the story, you guys. I really one of these days maybe I'll just do it on Filter Story Edition because uh, picking up a rando hitchhiker in your RV is really something. Um, and at different moments <laughs> along the way, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, I saw calls to shut down or defund the Seattle police. And this is happening everywhere around the country. It started in Minneapolis and it's spreading. I will never call sign on funding a police department that continues to brutalize us. And I will never stop saying not only do we need to disinvest for in police, but we need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. <laughs> And different politicians are getting in on that movement to try to take advantage of that excitement. Some who are 
already long down that path. They've been trying to they've been trying to advocate for defunding the police as part of their platform for a long time. And this is a brilliant opportunity. They're just excited to leap at protesters asking city leaders to defund police departments. And what that means is they want cities to spend less money on punishment and policing and more money on community services. In Minneapolis, the mayor responded to the calls for action, saying that he did not support the defunding uh, movement. Uh, His response was met with this. And the mayor was booed off stage. His office tells CNN that he is committed to structural reforms, but does not support abolishing or defunding the police. With us now to talk about this and a lot more, Carl Sudler. He's an assistant professor of history at Emory University in Atlanta, also the author of Presumed Criminal, Black Youth and the Justice System in Postwar New York. Uh, Professor, good morning to you. Good morning, Victor. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what's your understanding of this? Before we get to the history, um, the, the defund the uh, police movement, my assumption is that um, the protesters don't want the law enforcement line of the budget to be zeroed out completely, or maybe they do, but yes, they there do. Are we'll get to that. Um, I don't know how many of you recall Occupy Wall Street, but uh, that also was something that really seared itself into my memory because it was at a time when I started taking the news a lot more seriously and I started following this stuff a lot closer. It was really the beginning steps for me starting the Unfiltered podcast. And I'm not trying to make a direct comparison here, but I do feel like what started as protests around the death of George Floyd then turned into riots, which have now transformed into mostly what seem to be peaceful protests, but have gone in some areas in a very strong and very dangerous position. On Monday, just after I got out of there, the mayor of Seattle announced that the police at the city's East Precinct would be leaving the area and reopening the streets that had been blocked off for almost two weeks. Now, I'm going to play some audio in a moment, but it didn't take long before what's become known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone to take shape. Now, as the police were leaving this area and the barricades were coming down, the news cameras were running from a local affiliate, and I captured that audio. Come strapped and ready, but not afraid. That is a protester's call to action during this morning's peaceful protests. Now armed with guns and setting up tents, protesters remain outside the Seattle Police East Precinct. They've been out in streets of the Seattle's Capitol Capitol Hill neighborhood all night long, and it just doesn't seem like they plan to leave anytime soon. No, they don't. Yesterday, police removed the barricades, allowing the demonstrators into the street directly in front of the building. King 5's Callie Greenberg is live in downtown. Now, let's let's fast forward another day. So a day proceeds forward, and now the national news picks up on the story. On Monday, police boarded up a downtown precinct, and since then, hundreds of protesters, reportedly from Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and others, have moved into the area, declaring it the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ. And the protesters appear to be turning against their own, storming City Hall, demanding the resignation of Mayor Jenny Durkin. Unusual, since Durkin is a progressive who has long supported far-left issues. But this time, the mayor is calling for police reform. 
Protesters want the police department abolished and won't budge. The protesters have a series of demands. They are broadly across three categories, which I will have linked in the show notes. Uh, defunding the police is category one. Category two is interesting. It includes uh, changes to hospital staffing, uh, black doctors for black patients, demands of that nature. Now, when you hear this reporting, and I'll again link in the show notes, when you hear this reporting, it sounds like the police, they handed over the streets. They, they ran away and uh, evacuated the area and the protesters swarmed in. Well, part of that is true. This is a press conference the next day from the Seattle Police Assistant Chief, and it sounds like what happened was they made a good faith move, and the protesters took advantage of them in a very obvious way. We interrupt your normal programming ready? for breaking news. Seattle Police have now called a news conference. Okay. We know they're set to discuss the I'm East Police Chief precinct. The Let's listen in to the Assistant Police Chief. There have been a lot of questions about what's recently been happening up in the East Precinct, and I'd like to recap some of the most recent events. On Sunday, we heard from protesters that the barricades were becoming a flashpoint and that the protesters merely wanted the ability to march peacefully in the street and gather in the area. We embraced that request and we removed the barricades. We wanted to be able to facilitate and support peaceful demonstrations and we took the barricades down on Monday afternoon. We were made aware that there were several threats to burn down the East Precinct. As you know, the East Precinct is not a freestanding building. Uh -oh. It is in fact connected to residential apartment buildings and to several businesses. We consulted with the Seattle Fire Department, who informed us that if the East Precinct were to catch on fire, that there is the possibility that the fire would spread and a very real possibility that those businesses and residences would be impacted. So the first night, I'm not clear if this is continuing because, ironically, I'm not there um, when I normally would be. <clears throat> I would definitely go down to check this out if I was if I was home right now. Maybe it's better that I'm not. But at least the first night, I'm not sure if this has continued, uh, that East Precinct office was being guarded by armed protesters who are either of some militia or some affiliation, but they were guarding the building. And then people within that zone were getting mad at them for protecting what is called the pig pen. And it started a riff with inside that community. This would endanger firefighters, residents, and businesses. We felt that the safest plan at the time was to secure the building and have our officers relocated. We would like to be able to return to the East Precinct. Oh, please, can we please return? Our normal operations. This would improve our response times and our capabilities within the neighborhood. How, how matter of a fact business of this? You know, if we could get that building back of ours that we used to do all of our work, uh, God, it sure make us more efficient. <laughs> yeah, you think? It will allow our detectives to return and to work the criminal investigation cases that they are working. We need to formulate a plan where we could achieve that while providing for public safety. We have been hearing from community members that they have been subjected to barricades set up by the protesters with some armed individuals running them as checkpoints into the neighborhood. While they have a constitutionally protected right to bear arms, and while Washington is an open carry state, there is no legal right for those arms to be used to intimidate community members. If someone feels threatened or intimidated, we ask that they call 911 and report the incident. 
Now, here is our first major view disparity between the protesters and the cops. And the police assistant chief actually addresses this in the Q&A. They see this still as their jurisdiction. And so if you make a 911 call from within there, they will come in. And it almost sounds like she's inviting that. In, in why I'm going to play a little bit more of this audio for you. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone folks, they view themselves legitimately as their own country. They are their own nation. But the police force still see it as their jurisdiction. And if they get a direct call, they'll come in. And she almost, listen, she almost seems to be just, give us a reason. Give us a reason. No one at these checkpoints has the legal authority to demand identification from anyone. Again, we ask if anyone is subjected to these demands that they call 911 and report the incident. We have heard anecdotally reports of citizens and businesses being asked to pay a fee to operate within this area. Yeah, of course, there's over 500 citizens that live there. There's many businesses and there's rumors that, <clears throat> and I'm not joking, <laughs> there are there. Essentially, the word is, is that a rapper, a, a rapper is going around and demanding that companies de-affiliate themselves with the city. This is the crime of extortion. If anyone has been subjected to this, we need them to call 911 and report the incident. We feel incredibly strongly as a department that what happened to George Floyd was wrong and it was a crime. We fully support efforts to improve police accountability and to work towards improved racial equity. We are dedicated to working with peaceful protesters to figure out a way to move forward. We can only move forward if we can speak with one another in an atmosphere of safety and trust. Now, I assume there's going to be questions. Yeah, there was lots of questions. Boy, isn't that a weak position to take? They ceded territory of their own city, a major U.S. city with their own police precinct in it. They ceded that territory, and now these people have established barricades. And um, they have a much stronger negotiating position. Good for them. Bad for the city, bad for the police. Great for us to watch as really just sort of observers to the situation. I feel strangely detached being in Texas while this is going down. And that Q&A that happened, the audio was horrible. It was awful, awful bad. But there was one question I could capture. It ultimately was about the legality of the great nation of Chaz. It is not legal. However, in an effort to try to cooperate and collaborate and move forward peacefully, we're trying to get a dialogue going so that we can figure out the way to resolve this without unduly impacting the citizens and the businesses that are operating in that area. Oh, that's a time bomb. That's what that is right there. That audio clip will go down as the signal that this thing has an expiration date right there. At some point, they ultimately believe they have the legal authority. They do. They have the power. They have the reach. It's sort of they're going to entertain this negotiation as long as it seems politically viable to do so. Now, the great thing is, is everyone these days wants to be a YouTube star. Yay, YouTube. And that means even if you're not in Washington, you can find hundreds of on the ground videos inside the great nation of Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. I happen to kind of have a couple of people I was following already. And so uh, this is Desiree. And she says, really, guys, it's kind of all just a party in the zone. So I am down here in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, also known as Chaz. And the mood here is completely peaceful. If you can see over here, we've got people grilling uh, some food. 
Hell yeah. Yeah, I love a peaceful mood. You know, whenever uh, I'm in a peaceful mood, I feel like grilling down. And over here, we also have uh, free pizza, some drinks, water, all types of snacks. We've got uh, people handing out bags with masks and hand sanitizer, uh, literally everything you can think of. And uh, over here, is the memorial that is set up to all of the people that we've lost during the uh, George Floyd Rebellion, as they're calling it. Oh, how about that? The George Floyd Rebellion. That's It's no longer just a movement about police brutality. It's becoming something larger. It's about a way of life. And they've created themselves this little temporary utopia with free pizza, free grilling, free face masks and hand sanitizer. It could go on forever, right? This could go on forever. What could go wrong? That's what the uh, the wall says over there. There's like a constant 24-hour vigil. People can light candles and, you know, say their prayers, say, you know, just just hang out and, and um, yeah, just, uh, you know, give their thoughts and uh, take a moment of silence for everyone that we've lost uh, during the rebellion and also at the hands of the police. I would say uh, that... That way of thinking about the situation is pretty common. It's uh, indicative of what people indi- indicative. <laughs> there you go. Indicative of what people are talking and saying down there. They feel like it's a bit of a spontaneous community. Another soon-to-be YouTube star was walking around and documenting his thoughts, and he says just as much. I think one of the things too I've seen a lot of is is so it's like spontaneous community coming together, but it's more than that because it's. It's us on the streets, it's people in their apartments and back home, like donating to people for their, for their charity efforts, bringing food out, like, I've, like people's moms. I wanna give donations, what do I do? Someone help me, and someone shows up at their house and grabs their shit and brings it here. And that is what's going on. Yeah, they just bring their shit down and we're just eating that stuff, it's great. What, what could go wrong? Ah, it's a weird utopia phase they're in, where the people are, the politicians are entertaining this, the police are, uh, people's moms are willing to bring down food and clothing and help them build a little camp. Um, yeah, you are going to get a bit of a community when that's happening. Building your great nation in the middle of one of the country's major cities with over 500 residents living in the area tends to have that effect. And I'm not, I'm not trying to also take away from what the message they're trying to reach. Uh, I'll link to some of these videos so you can watch them. People are out of options. They are so frustrated. They, they see this as their chance to affect change. They talk about how they were sitting at home wishing things could be better, wishing that the economy wasn't rigged against them, wishing that the government wasn't just so unabated uh, without any checks from the, pe- from the people. Um, you hear all of it, the stuff that we talk about a lot on this show, you hear them wishing they could do something to take action instead of just observing, take action. And they see this as their chance. They say it's not just like a spontaneous community. It's like a big think tank. Well, right. And like, the, even though there's nothing like necessarily the, what the productive thing going on here is that there's a, this is a ad hoc think tank. It very and much is. It is. And people are figuring out, okay, we've been stuck inside for three months with COVID. Like, right, <laughs> yeah. You know, while the, while authoritarian world wants to keep boxes, boxing us in by taking away more freedoms as we sit here, this was the catalyst for everyone to come out of the... Well, I think it was. Then. And that's also why I think it's going to be very different than other protests. Generally speaking, irrespective of what the reason is, on Mondays, people go back to work. 
and so you can't come out every day. You just can't come out. But there's the Great Depression, the Greater Depression, the Greatest Depression. Yeah. A awful way to say that, but. 40 million Americans out of work, and there's no reason to think that number is stopping there. <laughs> that number is going to go higher. <laughs> yeah. So if there's no reason to be, there's no jobs to go to, there's no other reason than to be out in the street and finally demand the change that we want to see. Yeah, it's a think tank or maybe a simulation. <laughs> um, I feel for them. You know, you, you, it's a lot of younger voices, and you really do feel for them. They are clearly frustrated and don't know how to affect the change that they want to see happen. Uh, but you got to wonder when this thing starts to turn bad, when the fighting, the raping, all of the horrible things that happen at night start to happen, when the food starts to run low, what happens then? How long will it go? And ultimately, who will it serve? And that's truly the lesson I learned from Occupy Wall Street is ultimately who it serves are the businesses and the corporations and the banks. If you look at the history of Occupy Wall Street, they all worked in tandem with government to identify protesters eventually and just shut the whole thing down and just squash it. And you can be guaranteed that the feds are watching right now. They're tracking people. They're checking it. It was nice to see Amazon and others make some small attempts to save face by declaring that they would disable their face recognition software for law enforcement for a year. And then, you know, once the story passes and no one's talking about it anymore, they just quietly turn it back on. It's a utopia right now, but I, I have a sense it isn't going to go that way. And I feel for these kids because they don't have any other options. That You know, they're out of work and things don't look great long term for them. And when you combine that with things like the, the, the younger generation worries so, so much about climate change and you combine that fear with the economic worries and then the recent lockdown and the thing that strikes you in that conversation that those two soldiers of the great George Floyd rebellion were discussing is George Floyd's name never came up once. Now, obviously, it's still it's, it's still there. It, they, they, it is it is still in the DNA of this protest in Seattle, but they're not saying his name right now. It's become about something larger it's about the entire historical context. And that's why I want to caution those within the reach of my voice. I do not want to discourage you from contributing or donating or trying to affect change on your own because, man, can I understand that. That's what motivates me to get behind this microphone every day. So I completely understand that. However, I would, I would advise skepticism and see if there isn't maybe a more direct means to apply change than donating money. And if you do contribute money, just be aware of where that money goes. Follow the money. So Act Blue is an organization you may or may not have heard of before. Uh, from the New York Times on November 16th, 2018, Act Blue, the Democrats' not-so-secret weapon. There have been a lot of Democratic winners this election cycle, and many are historic firsts. More than two dozen are veterans, and more than 100 are women, but all have at least one thing in common. Act Blue. The online giving platform emerged as a piggy bank for the Democratic resistance in the 2018 midterms, funneling nearly $1.6 billion in contributions to Democratic candidates and causes. That's more than 80% increase over what would have been brought in four years ago. Now, if you look, there's some construction going on in the background. Now, if you look at where Act Blue has spent their money recently, 
Number one is $186 million to the Bernie Sanders campaign, $119 million to Biden for president, number two. Number three is the Elizabeth Warren Presidential Exploratory Committee for $93 million. Pete for America, $78 million. Act Blue has also sent... $55 million to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, Amy for America got $43 million. Friends of Andrew Yang, $31 million. Democrat, you get the idea. All 10 are big, huge, either Democrat political candidates or causes. Act Blue is generally the organization that is collecting money for Black Lives Matter donations. So when you, if you choose to do a BLM donation, know that the ultimate destination for that money may very well be Act Blue, which is just going to line the pockets of politicians who haven't done anything about this for the last 30 years. And they may be wearing scarves right now and taking a knee in D.C. or in California, but they they have had the power to affect change for 30 years, and they have never done it. Seattle is a core example of that. Los Angeles, another prime example of that. Minneapolis, another example of that. They've had the ability and the power and the position to affect change, and they haven't done it. And these donations to BLM, to Black Lives Matters, a lot of them are funded and all managed by Act Blue. And that money goes to these Democratic candidates. And so far, they've picked a bunch of losers. We don't know what the outcome of Biden will be yet, but where did the money go for Bernie? What about for Elizabeth Warren, Pete for America, Amy for America? That's millions hundreds of millions of dollars that got us nowhere. Nobody got elected. Nobody won. And it's just wasted money at this point. And it's not helping the core cause. It is your money. It's your choice. And perhaps that's you, if you're okay with the money going to that to help politicians that are theoretically moving these agenda items forward, that's your decision. It's absolutely your decision. But that's why I want to play this next clip, mostly without comment, I encourage you to listen to this with an open mind. This is Malcolm X from 1963. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football, and the white liberals control this ball through tricks or tokenism, false promises of integration and civil rights. In this game I hope it's not as true as it was 
but I have a suspicion not much has changed since 1963 in that regard. So just be smart where your money goes. And I don't know what else they could do. These politicians, these people, they haven't helped them. Yeah, they could vote, but they're beyond the point of believing that will be enough. You should check out the extended clip that I played in the intro. I'll have that linked. Tim Imus goes down to Seattle, and uh, they kick him out of the great nation of Chaz. Now, why is that? Well, because voting is no longer enough. They want more than that. And there's a when I say they, there's a large group of people that are represented down there. Something I'm sure that once the media fully realizes, they'll begin to attack the movement just like they did Occupy Wall Street. Well, what's their message? It seems to be too many groups. They have so many different things they want. Yeah. Yeah. They want to change a nation. And that involves a lot of things. Are they doing it the right way? Well, that's what I'd like your opinion on. Unfiltered.show slash discord. Or unfiltered.show slash contact. Now, I am still on the road, so uh, my communication times are in small windows. So I'm batching things. So you may notice from time to time I'm a little slow to reply, but still getting the show out there. Still monitoring the news. In fact, listening to a lot of good content going down the road. So please, continue the conversation. Let me know what you think. Help me collect those links. All of that. The Discord's great for that. Unfilter.show slash Discord. And last but not least, your support makes all the difference. This is a listener-funded show. Patreon.com slash Unfilter. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. <laughs>